How can we use farming to reverse climate change? Is it possible to eat food that is good for you, good for the planet, and affordable all at the same time? And what will happen to the world if we don't take these steps soon? In this episode of the Superheroes podcast, I talk to Kun van Sayen, a specialist in impact investing in regenerative agriculture, and he joins me to talk about solving some of the world's biggest problems. Sit down, relax, and have your mind blown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Supper Heroes podcast. I'm Jono Proudfoot and today we have Kun Van Sijin. How do I pronounce that? Van Sijen, don't worry. Van Sijen, okay, which is Dutch. Which and, is very Dutch, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Kun is an expert on impact investing and regenerative agriculture. Uh, so welcome to the show, Kun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I have the great privilege, just like you, to have people um, on podcasts, etc., and be able to ask them a lot of questions, which I'm curious about as a non-farmer and a, and a non-investor, a very small retail investor. I have the privilege to, to mostly ask. That's good. So there are two things that people who have just started watching might not know, and that is what is impact investing and then what is regenerative agriculture? Yeah, we can spend a few hours probably on both of them, but I, I will try to keep it short. So impact investing, the, the investors that are applying, let's say, an impact lens. I mean, normally with investing, the only thing you really look at are risk and return. And with impact, basically, you add a third dimension to it. Like, what is the potential impact, both negative and positive? And I see the impact investing space. There could be family offices. There could be private individuals like ourselves that might bank at a different bank or that putting money into um, renewable energy or regenerative agriculture. And they are looking not only for risk and return, but also for a positive impact and probably a net positive impact, meaning that they also take into account that every investment you make, every move you make has a negative impact and maybe also a positive one. And they try to look for an outsized positive impact. And it's there's some people doing it with a, a definitely a financial first angle, meaning they are looking for the same returns as they're looking in um uh, in their, their let's say, non-impact portfolio. So they, they could be looking at IPOs and there are people that are looking for slightly less return. Um, and there's a big discussion, obviously, if you can have the same returns and have a good impact. Uh, some people say yes, some people say no. I think many people have proven you can. Um, but of course, there are also many things that you cannot tackle with only investment amounts and their their grants necessary, et cetera. I'm looking at sure. sanitation and some other spaces. But they're very interesting examples. Now we live in a time where they're, many funds, there are many approaches, there are many success stories like Tesla, like uh, Beyond Meat, yeah. Impossible Burger, and, and many household names that we now know, like, oh, they have an outsized impact. And they also actually had a, or are having a, an interesting financial success. Great. So so just to clarify, you're saying that it's like um, environmental impact, social impact. Um, are there other what are there other tiers? Or? I think there those are the main, I mean, there, there are, some some people that say there are about eight types of capital, which means eight types of return, and and one of them is financial, and I won't go into all of them, but I, I think you can broadly bucket them under uh, environmental and social, and and obviously some people are very focused on the environmental piece, some people are very focused on the social piece, and many people are are focused on both because they want to have uh, an impact both socially, both environmentally, and also financially, and it's a very interesting tension. 
Um, it's sort of it, it, people want to sleep at night and know that their money is doing something useful and not, let's say, invested in a tar sand project in Canada or in a pipeline. And the, the annoying thing is if you're not paying attention to your bank or to what your money is doing, probably it ends up somewhere there because it's the yeah. easiest. It's if you're not asking questions and I think it, it's a very close thing to to food as well. If you're not asking questions, you can be sort of sure that it's. Yeah, there's some dirt in there that you don't want to know. And if you want to <laughs> sleep at night, you have to ask questions, a lot of questions. Absolutely. So tell us about regenerative agriculture. Yeah, I stumbled upon it in 2011. So we're coming up to almost 10 years and mainly from the carbon angle. So I, I will explain a bit more on that in, in a minute. But I saw it as a, I've, I've always been interested in food, obviously, or not obviously, I've always been interested in food, grace, taste, etc. And I suddenly saw and I knew that, that food and egg had been a huge negative impact on the, talking about impact, negative impact on the planet, socially and environmentally. And I discovered regenerative agriculture and I discovered a whole group of farmers that were mainly, you would call them soil farmers or regenerative farmers or carbon farmers that were mainly focusing on building their soil. And by doing so, they actually were part of the solution, not necessarily part of the problem. So they had way better profit margins, which is interesting as an investor. They had way better um, carbon levels in their soil, which is interesting from a um, from an impact perspective, because if the carbon is in the soil, it's not in the air, which helps us in, in these uh, crazy climate change periods. It had way better water storage, so in drought resistant, way more resilient uh, agriculture system. So I discovered this huge group of farmers that is on every continent, on every size, um, in every system is mainly focused on building soil, which is very different from what we thought because we normally say, okay, you're a potato farmer, you're a chicken farmer, you are, you grow apples. And these farmers, even if you visit them the first half hour, hour, you would just be talking about soil and then you would get to the crop they were using. So it's a very different mindset and a very interesting one, I think. Mm. And so if you would summarize it, regenerative agriculture, for me, I started following it about nine, nine, 10 years ago and discovered that and the movement has been growing a lot. Um, and yeah. it's really focused on how do we restore soil because we've been degrading it with agriculture for the last discussions are out there. If it's 25,000, 12,000, depending when we started with agriculture, we've been degrading, yeah. slowly mining. You should see it as a bank account. Slowly, we've been taking out money every day and we've not been putting anything back. And at some point you hit zero or you go under and then you have a, an interesting discussion with the bank. Let's say in agriculture, we're having that discussion now. Absolutely. So if I understand, like I, I heard a rumor about there being something like only 50 or 60 harvests left. Uh, is that about right? It was a big article. Yeah. And I think it was specifically, I think it was a Guardian article, which we probably should be able to find. Um, but it's about five, six years ago. So if we, we calculated right, we have 55, 54 harvests left. It was mainly on the UK, if I remember correctly, but you can, there are many places where we have less harvests. This is mainly years. So if you look at soil erosion, which is the losing of soil through wind, through water, through um, agriculture practices. It's when you see a river and you see it very brown. That's not supposed to be. That's somebody's soil floating away of a farm upstream. Yes. And, and when you see that, and that's losing it. And at some point, you, you end up with either very, very dead and very dry soil, or you end up with rocks. And so it is true in many places. We are running literally, and probably it's the most under, let's say, valued problem we have. We're literally running out of healthy productive soil, which is where most of our food, fiber, and oil come from, and probably most of our oxygen, most of our carbon storage, most of our water, etc. And yeah, we're running out of it. And it could be 60 years in some places, it could be 30 years in some places, or 100. It doesn't really matter. We're going to run out of it. And it's yeah. if you look at civilizations collapse, that's mostly what happened. They run out of soil through mismanagement, through drought, through many other 
but most civilizations collapsed because they ran out of soil. That's nuts. What? Yes. <laughs> it's not that we're not talking yeah. about it more. That's, the, that's <laughs> yeah. why like, you cannot unsee yeah. it when you see it. When you read that article, and it, it's done a lot of good because a lot of people talk about it now, like, oh, 60 harvests. But it might be Crazy. 20 where you live. I mean, that yeah. could be, might be 10, might be, or you're already done. There's 2 billion yeah. hectare, acres degraded land around the world. Just to 2 billion. That's a B. That's huge. So what, how does regenerative agriculture actually make soil or reverse, reverse that process? Yeah, it's not. I mean, there are a few things. One is that for a long time, we believed that it wasn't possible. Like it took 10,000 years to build an inch of soil. I mean, there are many of these, these uh, stories out there. And I think we have enough farmers now that prove that it's, it is possible. And actually, if you go back in time, there are quite some indigenous tribes that were able to build soil at scale. Um, we forgot about that in the last few hundred years, and especially the last 50, we haven't paid attention to that. We have built a very input-heavy um, system, which also created a lot of output. I mean, we, we have less hunger than we ever had in the world. We created a lot of cal calories, but it came at a huge cost of input. We never did the input-output calculation because you had to put in maybe 120 to get 100 out. That's not going to work for so long. So what does regenerative agriculture do differently? It's, it's not as... Um, it, that's one of the issues as well. It's not a plug and play. It really depends where you are. It's very context and place dependent. But there seem to be, let's say, four or five main uh, processes that all regenerative uh, farmers use to a certain extent. And the first one is minimum soil disturbance. So everything we learned about plowing, we have to prepare the field and we leave it barren for six, eight months, and depending on the climate you are, with the huge tractors and you see them turning the soil. That is very counterintuitive, but it doesn't work. It really? completely, like ditch the plow is probably the first sentence most people say in regenerative agriculture, which is very difficult because it goes against our system of the last. So minimum soil disturbance. Obviously, when you're growing potatoes, you need to get them in and out. So you're disturbing the soil a bit, but you're not doing that one meter deep and then turning it around, which costs a lot of diesel, by the way. It's not, a, it's not yeah. an easy thing. So minimum soil disturbance. The soil should always be covered. So there should always be growing something. And you can sort of compare it. You should see, and a farmer should be seen as a, a solar entrepreneur. He or she needs to take all the solar rays that you get for free throughout the years and turn it into sugar, meaning you need as many leaves as possible. And there should always be growing something. That could be a cover crop for the soil, could be a cash crop for us, could be a mix of both. It could be many, many different things. But barren soil, if you see any soil that is naked, you know that farmer is not building soil, which probably means 99% yeah. is doing that. But just you see, like, because you won't see barren soil in nature. Like it's really following the recipe of nature, how nature builds soil. The only way you see it is in the desert, which is probably not what we want. So the second one is cover your soil with something at all times. The third one is complex rotations in both time and place. And why do I say time and place? Because both on the place itself, in the same, like if you're growing something now, don't grow monoculture, don't go in a monocrop. You see farmers do four, five, six types of grains mixing. You see them doing a cover crop with a grain crop included. You see them integrating trees with um, with certain crops. Like There's always a complexity. If there's one crop, it's very easy for an insect to completely destroy it or for a pest. So there's always, a, 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 on the same spot, most farmers are growing multiple crops. And over time, you see them getting more complex and getting more um, adventurous. And over the yeah. years, so never the same year, like you're not growing tomatoes on the same field every year, you're rotating, which most farmers do. But in this case, most farmers do 10 or sometimes 15 year rotation. So they're very complex, very large, um, a very large dense, basically, too. also to make sure that the, the, 
pathogens that attack the tomato don't have anything to eat for a few years. So when you come back, you have a, have a good soil. So those are the three. And then many are integrating livestock at some point in their rotation, meaning they're grazing on the cover crop, they're trampling it in. Of course, the manure is very good because it's a low input. It's, it's an input that's already on your farm. Not everybody does that, but most farmers at some point somehow integrate livestock. So th those would be the four main ways to build soil. You can probably add one or two, but these are the, the ones. So low soil disturbance, cover, always covering complex rotations and livestock integration. So there's a there's a, a little debate there, and I don't know where you sit here, but I read a book called Defending Beef, where, you know, like beef has got a really bad reputation because I think it is farmed horrendously in 99 or 97% of, of cases. But I've heard that regenerative beef is actually carbon negative if you do it properly. I mean, is that... Is that true? Is there, that I mean, I think it's safe to say there's a huge debate out there. Um, I think <laughs> we. I think there are two different questions. One is, should, what's the role? Is there a role of livestock? I would take it bigger than beef because usually these farmers integrate other types of livestock as well because it really depends on where you are and what you should, what you can do. So, is there a role in livestock to create soil faster? And I think that answer is yes. Be we've seen. Um, many, many examples, and the study you refer to is done by a very, very well-respected um, life cycle assessment company that does this, also for Impossible Burger, by the way. Um, and they came to the conclusion that it can, can be done carbon negatively, which is very interesting. Still, a lot of research needs to be done on the methane, which they included, by the way. Um, the truth is that most meat is obviously not grown in that way at the moment. Yeah. So if you mm. choose to eat meat, you really need to search well. And I think that comes yeah. to the second question, okay, if there's a role for, for animals in building soil, which I think there is, then the second question, which we as society need to figure out, do we want to eat them then? Because it doesn't mean we have to eat them at the end of their productive life or their integrated life. And that's a sec, but usually those two questions are like put on top of each other and we answer them, no, let's go vegan. And I think that doesn't do justice to the potential role we have. And I see most farmers that are very regenerative and very advanced, they have livestock in their operation, which sort of means, I don't know if they can do without, but at least it goes a lot faster. And I think if the, the target of this sector is to build soil, and this is a, a tool with all respect, I'm saying that, then we should <laughs> use it in the best way possible. And obviously animal welfare, et cetera, should be top of mind there. And then the second sure. question is, do we want to eat that or not? And there's a nutrition discussion there, which is a third, basically. Like, do we need to eat or not? And also there, there's a lot of discussion, which I don't think is, is something we want to go into. But it's, yeah, it's very interesting, the carbon part, the nutrient part, and, and also the uh, do we want to eat animals, which is a fair discussion. I mean, we will have it over the next years, so I have no doubt. Yeah, no, that's big. Um, so, in fact, the woman who wrote uh, Defending Beefs a Vegetarian, which I thought was quite interesting, but she's a, a rancher in the States, so her husband owns a farm. But, all right, so back on track. The So so there isn't actually a specific crop that is regenerative. It's more like the method, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly. I think if we go to the lifestyle one, there's a movie coming out. I think it's called It's Not the Cow, It's the How. Oh no, it's, 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 sorry, it's sacred cow and then the undertitle is not the cow and it's the how. And I think that, that comes to, to all crops as well. It's not the crop, it's the, it's the management, it's the how. You see, you can see amazing regenerative almond farmers in California that are having an orchard where you want to live basically, because it's green. It's, it's very, it's not a desert underneath. The trees are healthy. The almonds are very healthy. And then you see the neighbor who has exactly the same weather, exactly the same, actually the origin, origin, the trees were the same. 
but completely different management meaning basically like the movies where you see all the the, the grass blowing through through the trees basically like a western movie yeah. and that's not a place you want to be and the trees are held up by a mix of chemotherapy and and other inputs and i think that shows it shows you very nicely the difference left and right like a fence line you know, they're very nice pictures of purely management is different soil is the same was the same um, climate is the same, the, the crops are the same, or the livestock is the same, but the only thing that's very, very, very different is the management, yeah. which makes it very difficult. I mean, that's something we need to, it's something we need to learn, it's something we need to see, it's something we, we need to read about, it's something we need to to do in our farm instead of copying what happens. Even copying across the street is difficult because it's slightly different, slightly different landscape, etc. Yeah, it comes down to the wine term, like the terroir is different in, in every single... The wine guys uh, and girls are, are very much advanced in this stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah very much, because it affects the, the palate, obviously. And why do um, we believe that in wine, but not in tomatoes? I don't know. Well, that's that's something interesting, because I remember spending, you know, I did two years in the wine industry, and I remember um, going picking strawberries, you know, with my kids last year. And, and it's like, it's so obvious to me that when you're looking at the strawberries, they're like the ones that are on the vine, the longest are going to have the most sugar and they're going to be the sweetest. And the ones with that little like white cap at the top that haven't ripened properly, they're, they're going to be yeah. sour. Yeah, they're going to be sour. And you'd be surprised how many people don't know that. And they just pick this huge thing. And that's just one element. Like the soil, you know, at our house will make different flavored strawberries to the soil out in the winelands. Anyway. Let's not go there, but but no, yeah. No, but I think that I think we can learn a lot from the the wine industry on on the marketing side of things as well. And on, I mean, yeah. they are able the higher end ones, obviously, to sell taste and and yeah. to sell a story and to sell the terroir, and, and that's quite fascinating. Yeah, well, in South Africa, there's some guys doing that with their beef, but it's very it's it seems that we're miles behind on the vegetable front. People are becoming a lot more conscious about like you know grass fed versus grass finished versus um organic and that's actually about the next question so um yeah so obviously i understand the soil benefits and the microbiome which will in fact we'll get into that but between organic and free range and regenerative are they like different or do they fit together what is the the difference there i think it comes down to to one crucial piece, like is it building soil or not? I mean, definitely the the original fathers and mothers of, of organic were focused on that. And you can still see that a lot in biodynamic and actually also in organic farmers, but organic doesn't mean by definition building soil. So the question is always, is somebody building soil? Because you have huge industrial scale organics that are plowing like there's no tomorrow because they cannot use certain pesticides. So to, to control the weeds, which is another discussion, are, does weed actually exist or not? Um, because it's just a term. <laughs> but it's interesting that some organic might be worse for the climate because they're plowing so much and thus releasing a lot of carbon from the soil. And so there's, I, it, but I think it boils down to, to the central question, is the farmer on that farm building soil or not and can he or she show that and can make it can you make that measurable like what is the carbon level to when you started what is the runoff what are the inputs and most organic is better but not by definition and and i think it's something we have to it's a question and a discussion just like we have to ask with our portfolio like is it doing something good or not and in this case is yeah. it building soil and and that seems yeah like a central question we hardly ever ask like when do you ask that at the farmer's market never so so basically you can have organic stuff that's like bad for the environment and you can have 
you can have stuff that's really good for the environment that's like not organic. Also, because obviously certified organic, I mean, yeah. I will know, you, we will all know many farmers that are that are following the organic principles, but are not certified organic because yeah. they don't want to pay the cost of the, the certification. They sell mostly directly through people that actually know them, which is way stronger than a certificate. They don't need it. They don't feel there's an added benefit. So there's a lot of that discussion and organic only looks at, at the environment, like the input piece and output piece. And actually there's a lot of work being done now by Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's to make a regenerative organic certificate, meaning certification, meaning it's sort of a plus. So you have to be organic to start with, but then they start to look at soil building, social. So they're really making a big effort to make it an all, like an all encompassing regenerative looking both at social and environmental, but making uh, it a certification. If that's gonna work, I don't know, I, I hope it will. Um, it's gonna be another certification on the, on the packaging, which we have already many, um, but it's a, it's a good effort to show like, look, organic is a, is a good step. It was a good way of, for people to learn how to look on packaging and look for that logo, which is working brilliantly. And many farmers are really good at that. And now the next step is okay. Are we let's inter introduce what we know now about soil building? Let's introduce what we obviously know and knew about social, and, and let's look at a bit more holistic picture of uh, of the crop because it could be. I'm not saying organic is bad. Um, definitely for the, the the less chemicals there in it. I mean that's amazing. Doesn't necessarily mean they're building soil, right? Especially the bigger ones because it's it's not easy to do at large large industrial scale. And it could be uh, that could be quite it could be easier to plow a lot, and that's obviously quite detrimental to the soil. Well, let's talk about scale because it's you know I know this is a micro niche and we wanted to to grow, um, but you know I don't know if you heard uh, about I mentioned an email, but the the food crisis in America as a result of the pandemic, like there are six basically only six companies in America that pack it, that pack meat. Yeah. And, um, and most of and them are closed due to the virus. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so what's happened is, is basically all, all, I mean, I don't know if this is kind of related, but basically there's a ton of grain in America and it's feeding all the animals and there's a ton more grain, but this is like, if you've feeding seen the videos, cars, which we're not driving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. So, but they are just like fields and fields and millions of, of just miles and miles of this, um, Grain, like, could you? Is there a way that they can make that regenerative? Absolutely, I think. But that the, the grain discussion in the US or the grain discussion in general is most of the grain grown in the world is not for us directly. It's either for ethanol or for livestock. I mean, if we start with not feeding grain to beef anymore and get them out on cover crops, you would solve an enormous and then have the discussion we should eat them. But you would solve an enormous amount of, of issues because if you create the perfect environment if you would design it from scratch for a virus to to escape it would be a feedlot plus a large-scale industrial butcher butchery plant with a lot of people cramped in one place no fresh air animals that obviously are being slaughtered it's just like it's a disaster waiting to happen and it, it's crumbling now and you see the small-scale butchers they cannot keep up with demand i mean they're full until the end of the year all the small scale, smaller scale, because a lot of them are not so small, but anything smaller than the, the one of the large six is, is scrambling to keep up because suddenly people see empty shelves. Suddenly people like the, the system is crumbling. And I think mm. to, but to, in order to, to transition an enormous, let's say 20,000 acre grain operation that is operated by one or two people on a tractor to regenerative, you probably have to split it up. First of all, you need more hands, which is not necessarily a bad thing. We're in a time where there's enormous 
um, unemployment. And don't forget, working on regenerative farms is not the, the, the same work we see, like picking uh, tomatoes, etc. It's, it's when done well, it's very, it's well paid. It needs more hands, but it's also, it's, it's normal work. Like it's pleasantry work. It's still hard work, yeah. but it's not doing six weeks of the same thing. But in order to, to transition such a large operation, probably they have to start growing food for people, like real food for real people. Maybe yeah. start with a piece, start with 10%, start because already on grain, you can do a lot with cover crops, with different rotations, et cetera. But if then your grain is still a commodity product that is being sold in a market against a loss, because most grain operations have lost money in the last, farmers have lost money in the last 10 plus years. Wow. Like you have to figure out if you, you need to grow something that people want to eat um, and make sure you can sell it against a margin that makes sense. But the transition on, on, it doesn't really depend on scale. You can do it at very, very large scale. In Australia, there are huge farms that are transitioning, but you need to find, I mean, it needs both a market and it needs a farmer and a team that is able to manage not just grain and one huge grain tractor, but actually manage yeah. different crops, different rotations, maybe integrating trees, maybe animals, which is very complex. This is not easy. Could be very, very profitable. You see that in organic grains, which are way more pricey than others. But yeah, it, it requires quite a quite a shift, and that's why it doesn't spread like wildfire um, over. Mm. It, it starts to because the more people are pushed against the edge, the more people um, are willing to change. And you see that with the first generation of, of regenerative farmers, many were changing out of necessity because they didn't have money anymore to buy inputs. They were hit by three droughts, and then they started experimenting with some cover crops because they were cheaper than inputs. Mm. And, but it's it's very difficult. I mean, it's it's not an easy transition because you're stuck in a system. You have a huge debt loan from from the government. You have a huge insurance bill with with the U.S. government. And if you're even if you're doing certain cover crops and certain mixes, you're not getting that insurance. So the risk you're taking is enormous, and your bank is not going to be <laughs> super happy about that. Yeah, and and so if I understand, you know, the one part of it is is obviously the the transition but the other is actually just adapting to a totally new style where like growing grain it looks like right now they've got it kind of as automated as it can possibly be and so there's no real incentive for these guys to to the last time they touched soil could be quite a while ago like they got out of the (laughs) tractor and actually looked at their main asset eh? let's let's that's their main thing the only thing that keeps the farm sort of alive is their soil I mean, everything else is you cannot control the weather, the, the prices of the commodities, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing you can do something about is that. But the last time they touched it, I would bet yeah. it's a while ago. Well, let's talk about that soil. So so say you've got this this uh, corn, what do we call it, like a mega farm. Yeah, a not normal. That? It Actually, if you look at the majority of farms, even in the US, is still family owned and small, relatively small. But the majority of acre, acreage is obviously in the, like it's a power law. The majority of acreage is in a, it's in a number of very large uh, farms. The majority of smaller farm, the majority of farms, the number of farms is actually quite small and growing a mixed crop in many cases. Oh, wow. And, and so the soil, you've, you know, the soil, the microbiome, the health, the nutrient density and the taste from a vegetable, for instance, from one of these mega farms versus a regenerative farm. Can you draw a comparison between the two? I mean, I think there are two pieces there. I mean, the, the, 
the conclusion, no, no, I wouldn't say the conclusion. There's a lot of research being done on the emptiness of our current food and the dangers of our current food system. There's Zach Bush, obviously, in the US, Mark Hyman, and, and others that are really looking at what does this current industrial input driven, like chemically input driven, industrial, not necessarily bad, but the chemical, chemical inputs definitely are. What are the impacts of glyphosate? What are the impacts of other um, chemicals that we don't even know by name? And it starts to show that it's quite bad. I mean, just eating your vegetables, um, not knowing where they come from is probably not enough to, to get healthier because if those vegetables have been completely sprayed to death, it's gonna, it's gonna impact you and your microbiome quite a lot. So there's one piece on, on how empty our current food is, what you find in a normal supermarkets, et cetera. Then there's a lot of much more less, much less depressing news on the, what is actually, what is possible and, and what is possible also with traditional grain operations, if they're shifting already in a few years, we see huge changes in the grain, like in the quality of the grain, in what the, the, the nutrients we need, et cetera. And if you look at um, vegetables, et cetera, there's, there's quite a bit of research by interesting farmers, not so much about academia, but interesting regenerative farmers that are starting to show that their vegetables, their carrots, their eggs, their lettuce, etc., is full with nutrients and way fuller than, let's say, if you compare that tomato with a tomato that's been grown in a hydroponic um, situation or in very poor soil, you could even argue it's not really the same. It's not the same product. It's not the same tomato. Even if it looks a bit the same because they've been playing, obviously, with all the water and all the, the chemical inputs to make it look nice and shiny. But if you look at the nutrients in it, it's completely different. One could be completely empty and the other one could be really, really full. And I think that's very exciting because that means we can have that discussion. Okay, what would food as medicine really look like? Like what is nutrient full food and what is taste? And is that connected to like healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut systems? Because we don't talk enough about our gut system and healthy people. Mm. Like what are those connections? What are those lines? And that's something that in the next few years, I think we're going to see a lot of very exciting and at the same time very depressing news on what's currently in our food and what could be yeah. in our food or what is in the let's say the niche or the, the exciting pioneer uh, space yeah and so you mentioned earlier as chefs always knew that i mean you as a chef taste is is obviously connected to yeah. uh, to nutrient density you see dan barber you see others going deep on that and, but I think the rest of the public, we need to sort of relearn that, that we can trust our tongue, which is a really good sensor, but we have to learn to taste again compared to all the sugar and, and salt we've been eating. Mm. I mean, one of the, the things that we learned as chefs was that the best chefs, Michelin star chefs, you know, all of these guys, they're not, I mean, they are fantastic chefs and they've got great skills, but what makes you an amazing like Michelin star chef uh, is usually how good you are at procuring great produce so you'll find fresh first thing yeah the first thing you read on the menu you know is just like study of tomatoes and you're like oh okay well i can eat that at home and then you taste the tomato and you're like oh my goodness this is like the best tomato i've ever had and you don't know why or what the chef done to it but it's just because you found it at the right point yeah right and and long-term relationships with the farmers and i mean see many Chefs obviously now are, are uh, not working so much and many actually are starting gardens now. Like there's not such a long, such a big step. And I think there's something interesting there in chefs because long time the, the farm to fork movement and, and really focusing on that one piece of perfect meat or that one heirloom grain or that one heirloom tomato. And I think there's a discussion now starting, which but I think we should have it much more like, okay, what's the rotation? Like you need to, and then Barbara started that really nicely with the third plate. Like if you interact with your farmer, you cannot just buy that one crop 
You cannot buy the one type of super nice grain, etc. No, you need to buy the other six or seven years as well, because he or she is rotating that to get that one super, super, super nice crop for you. So you need to figure out how to support, buy, procure, and basically buy everything that comes off the farm, everything that's produced. And maybe they're less fancy. And so then use your chef skills to figure out something. I think he did, um, then Barbara did a rotational risotto where he didn't use the fancy grain, but he used everything else from the rotation. And it's an interesting thought. Like you cannot, you cannot take one piece from the animal. Like you have to eat the whole animal. You cannot take one piece from the rotation. You have to eat the whole rotation, which is complicated. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to just be that you're kind of trying to replicate nature as best as possible because you wouldn't. You that's, know, that's the whole. Yeah. Yeah, people are like, oh, this doesn't make sense, but it's like the the most. It makes more sense than anything. <laughs> Go and, and spend and, time and so with farmers. I think that's the main the main message. Go and spend time in the field with regenerative farmers. You'll be surprised how much this makes sense. Yeah. And so from a financial perspective, you know, um, if it if it is profitable. So the one thing I heard you say is you, it's more profitable because the price is higher. No, Depends. It's also because the inputs yeah. are lower. I mean, it's it's a yeah. double-edged sword. And I think there's a, there's a nice, there's funny enough, it's not so funny, actually. There, there are very, very few studies on profitability and regeneration, like in regenerative agriculture, that combination. I, I found one, 2018. I interviewed the, the, the author, and he was also surprised. I mean, they're bringing out some more on almonds and, and rangelands, but they did one on, on grain, grain operations. So what they did, they found the most regenerative grain operations in the U.S., and they compared them to their neighbors which were doing normal. And they found some very interesting uh, results. I, I can actually read it because I have the article. So the pests on the non-regenerative ones were 10 times more abundant on the farms that were using insecticides. Eh? So they were using insecticides, but there were 10 times more pests wow. on the fields that uh, compared to the insects insecticide-free uh, regenerative farms, indicating that wow. obviously the pest management systems, etc. <laughs> I wouldn't say complete nonsense, but they are... Yeah. The regenerative fields had a 29% lower grain yield. So that's an issue. And we talked about it in the interview. And, and actually, it, it, they get there over, over time. Like you need to restore the soil. And we see now operations that get very close to, especially in moments of drought, where everybody else lost, loses their crop, you still have something. So they get closer to, but let's say they're 29, 30% lower yields, but they had a 78% higher profit compared to the, the corn production of, uh, of the non-regenerative one. That's almost no, 80%. That's is that because lot. of the price? Yeah, I mean, that's... that's. It's partly price, but it's mostly input. It's mostly input, yeah. less tractors, less chemical inputs, less insecticides, which are hugely expensive. Like the only people profiting from this system are the input sellers. Like everybody else loses. Yeah. The climate, us, we have cheap calories, but let's say we lose in the long run. The farmers lose as well. Like the only ones yeah. winning are the input companies. And the, the interesting thing is what the profit was positively correlated with the organic matter in the soil, not to the yield. So higher yields didn't mean higher profit, more organic matter, which is what we want. We want more carbon in the soil because that's where it belongs, was yeah. positively correlated to, to the profit. That's nuts. Okay. So so if hypothetically the whole world that was under like mega farming had to switch over time, uh, it could be more profitable in general. In Absolutely. Fact, yeah, yeah. It could bring the price, the end users, the consumer's price down. Is that right? If we cut out the middleman, which many, I mean, many of these farmers are like the the regenerative farmers that are doing mix are sometimes slightly smaller. They sell directly in many cases, mm. which you get amazing food 
for maybe a supermarket price, maybe slightly higher, but something you could actually never find in a supermarket because it would never enter that channel. Like the the, the food of jo Joel Salatin, which is one of the main leaders in the space in the US, you cannot find anywhere else than buy directly. You can pick it up and there are pickup points and there's a whole distribution channel, but this is quality food that could outperform anything you can ever buy somewhere else. So the price point, obviously, we pay, I mean, I think in the US now, people pay 9% of their income to to food, and it used to be 18%. Now they spend 18% on healthcare and 9% on food. It just went, it reversed, which is, we should, we should consider that. But I don't know, I mean, it's a long discussion if it should be cheaper or not, if it should be more expensive, but we pay less on healthcare. There are a lot of costs, obviously, that are externalized, water quality, carbon, I mean, a lot of costs that big, extractive, industrial, non-regenerative farms are not paying is yeah. because we are all paying it. <laughs> like we're paying, to, we're paying to clean it up. We're paying to pay for the hospitals. We're paying for the diabetes. We're paying for everything. So at the end, it's way cheaper. It depends how you, as an accountant, you know that, how you obviously do the accounting on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, it sounds like a wonderful um, problem to try and solve on a big spreadsheet. Uh, and so, you know, so you're an investor or at least you, you know, you work in the impact. I would love investment. to. I mean, I, I am a retail investor, meaning I put, can put small amounts to work, meaning a few hundred, yeah. a few thousand. Unfortunately, I can do that much easier in renewable energy than I can do mm -hmm. it in regenerative agriculture. It's one of the reasons I'm following this space because I would love to invest in this transition. I would love to invest in a local farmer, a small amount, that he or she can go faster through the transition, can buy more cover crops, can get that better equipment, etc. So far, yeah. I see the first few small ones, but it's not been really, really possible, unfortunately. For larger investors, yeah. yes. If you're a family office, if you have a foundation, there are way more possibilities to, to put money to work at the moment. Yeah, and, and let's talk about some of those. So, you know, can you name like a specific, I, I've read about stuff in India, but are there specific countries or, or companies or even individuals who've had remarkable success? I know Joel Salatin's one, but maybe like from, a, uh, from an investment perspective where they've actually seen returns. Yeah, for now, I think the main focus of the investment sector, so investors trying to, to read to be active in regenerative agriculture has been in the space of uh, setting up a fund. So investing or collecting one, two, three, four hundred million dollars, buying land. So physically buying land, mostly in Australia and the US, because it's the most developed buying land uh, industry. Not saying it's good or bad, but that's it's, it's the easiest to buy land in, in those places and regenerating it. Basically, main, meaning you change the, the management, you, you make all those complex changes that we discussed before. And you get dividends, obviously, or you get money back because you're producing food, more food than before. Usually they buy quite degraded land. And then after 10 years or 15 years selling that because it has a higher value, you basically, you, it, it's the same as a real estate investment in many cases. You buy a degraded building, you, you fix it, you hopefully a lot of people rent places in it and you make money and maybe you sell it or you keep it for as long as possible. That has been the main focus of the sector. Quite successfully, people doing nice high single digits so anywhere between five and ten but also higher actually and you see now some people starting to target 15 percent returns etc which is quite high there's a huge discussion to be had there obviously about ownership do we want so much of the land being controlled by a very small amount of people probably we don't <laughs> probably but it's it's also being the front edge of this movement because it's where the, the pension funds are doing their investments 
I think there are two main problems with it. One is that ownership discussion. And also there's only so much land you can buy and there's only so much land and so much money around to actually buy it because most of your money is going to be blocked in land and land is quite expensive in many places. So the amount of hectares or acres you can change and transform is limited. It's still a lot, but it's limited. And there's a sort of second wave now coming of people starting to figure out transition finance. How do we help that farmer that we talked about that has 20,000 acres grain that is maybe done on 2000 have done uh, pilots, but now wants to scale up to the whole, wants to go organic, regenerative, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a whole movement now around transition finance. The sad thing is it's very early, it's pilots. There are some pilots in the US, there's some pilots, um, like some people are, are saying, okay, how do we invest with the farmer to build soil and how do you get a return? And you see also there like high single digits are possible. Um, but again, we're super, super early. So we know in a few years, but I think that's the potential is much bigger because there are way more farmers that don't want to sell their land, but want to transition. And if we yeah. as society can figure out a way to help them and to partner with them, meaning we're going to buy their stuff also in the transition period when it's not perfect yeah. yet. Also after we promise that we sign a contract. So we have an offtake agreement. We're going to maybe pay for carbon storage, which would be great. We're yeah. going to, and we're going to pay, invest in their transition. And I think that's going to be a huge movement. And then of course there are all the tech companies you can invest in that are measuring soil health and they're, Food companies that are not being set up yet, but hopefully in the near future, that are selling this nutrient-dense food, food as medicine. Mm. So there, but there's not too much yet. And and in general, this sector is very, very early. I think you can hear from a lot of the sorry, but I think the transition finance is is going to be very exciting because it gives us the chance to partner with farmers in, I mean, anywhere, smallholder farmers in in sub-Saharan Africa or. Um, large-scale farmers in Germany, in Australia. I mean, there are so many farmers that need to transition and they need they need partners. They don't need help necessarily. They need partners. And I think society, us, should be because they are our only hope in uh, in this mess. Absolutely. So if I understand correctly, basically, if, if we can get consumers to know about the benefits of regenerative agriculture uh, and we can get farmers to actually, you know, you kind of need to stimulate supply and 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 demand at the same time. Yeah, but, but like, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, the financial sector, you know, these are a bunch of clever guys. They'll find a way. They will to, figure it to, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm not worried about the money part. I think yeah, a successful yeah. transition has three main pieces. It's access to peer support and independent advice, meaning that a farmer needs to see that his neighbors are doing this as well. Because otherwise, it's super, super risky. Not because they're stupid, because they're slow, because it's super, super risky. Because you have, as a farmer, maybe 40 harvests in your life. That's your whole career. So are you going to gambling three or four of them? Probably not. <laughs> like, don't, don't underestimate the risk people are taking by changing. So you need peer support, meaning people in your area that are doing this as well, and that can help you, that maybe are a few years ahead of you, etc. You need independent agronomic advice, because most advice now on the farm is sold by input companies. The best advisors are Syngenta. Why? Because they're paid the best. But of course, they're selling you stuff, which means they always oversell you, like always, 30, yeah. 40% easily. Doesn't mean they're yeah. bad, but their incentive structure is, is they, they oversell chemicals. Just like Shell is going to help you save petrol. Probably not. They're going to sell you more. That's the So independent yeah. advice, access to markets, like us, all of us, brands, etc. If you can just, even if you can not even pay more, but just guarantee, like I'm going to buy your produce during the transition and after, I promise. Like, yeah. And this is yeah. a price. Let's lock in a price now. That means a farmer has security, which is something that until now we put all the risks always of climate, price, etc., on the farmer. Like everything yeah. is outsourced to the farmer. And we don't take any risk. We can always go to another supermarket. We can always go to another country. We can always, 
we cannot do that. And then the third is access to money. But that seems to be, I mean, if the other two are, are ticked the boxes, then you should be fine. The money, the clever money guys will figure out the way to, to invest in this. Yeah, I, that's fascinating. I mean, I suppose the, you know, if, if demand just shot up from the consumers, it would happen naturally. Everyone would be like trying to climb on a bus. Um, I mean, I'm not that worried. Yeah. I mean, we had 100 years but we have 10 or 15. So that's the, the if we had 100 years, you see farmers transitioning every day. I mean, they see their neighbors growing. It's not, they discover online, Gabe Brown, Joel Salatin. They, there's an endless amount of lessons you can follow now. There are courses you can do online. I mean, there's, and they don't go back. The problem is we, we need to speed this up because we're literally yeah. running out of soil and running out of time. Very interesting. And so, um, so do you have a, is there a, like, is there a, a fantastic model where, where like you have invested, you know, a client's money or, or that where you've seen like one farm go from A to B? Um, so far, not yet. I mean, we've seen um, that, the, let's say, I know a few investors that have invested in like these large funds that definitely have taken a farm or a piece of land from very barren to full of life. I think that's the biggest transition you can. Um, so there are a lot of those examples. There are a lot of examples of people buying a farm themselves, like a lot of people that are good in this space, that are good regenerative farmers, they end up buying a piece of land somewhere, maybe not that big, depending on the budget, and they completely transform it. I mean, there are many examples here in Italy, there are many examples in Europe that completely, like if you see the before and after pictures, it's just like it's another place, but it's the same. And they put a lot of work in it. It's not that it's a... But maybe the most visual one, I'm not saying it's the most profitable one from a financial point of view, but I think it's it's really good. It shows the, the potential is the, the movie they made or documentary, The Biggest Little Farm, where they literally took a p piece of barren land just north of Los Angeles and in seven, eight years turned it into a chaotic mix of life and, and documented it in an amazing way. And I think it's important for the space because you can see how beautiful this process can be, how chaotic, how difficult. It's not easy to keep coyotes out. It's not easy to find some kind of balance. And they show the death, the life and everything. And I think it's yeah. it's, it's a good place for, uh, it, it's, it's very important for the sector because suddenly the general audience can see Ah, that's what they mean when they talk about soil. That's what they mean about integration. That's what I mean by chaos. And they had some chaos. Um, but in terms of, I mean, I know I know a lot of farmers personally that I haven't invested in it because it's simply impossible that, that have made very interesting transitions in five to seven years seems to be enough time to um, a, a potato farmer just south of Rotterdam in the Netherlands that last year, because there was another year of drought in the Netherlands, which is something we never have or yeah. had better. Yeah. He had to water, irrigate, I think, once his crop, his neighbor six times. Same crop, same tomatoes, or same potatoes, same. And that's just, just the diesel you save with pumping that and just the amount of work, just the amount of, and, and obviously he had a really, really, really good harvest just because he's been working the soil completely or they have been working the soil completely different than their neighbors. So there are many of these examples. And then the profit ones obviously are nice when they come out. In this case, it's grain yeah. or it's, uh, it's corn, sorry. And... The same research, which actually it's a farmer and an academic at the same time, uh, they're going to come out with almonds, which are, I think, six times more profitable when done regeneratively and rangelands wow. as well. So they're going to look into livestock. I hope before the end of the year, we have more of these profitability and regenerative um, studies. And actually, there's a small study in Belgium where they looked at grain as well. And also there, they saw the most profitable ones were the ones that had the highest organic matter in their, in their soil. Mm. 
So would you, I mean, how does this compare to green energy as an investment area? Because I remember like, if we go back 20 years, yes, everyone was we saying- we were at the same space. It was the same yeah, space. Yeah. I think we can learn a lot, honestly. I'm looking in a, a wind turbine actually here outside the window. <laughs> I think we can learn a lot because as I said before, I'm able to invest in and euro as well, like a hundred euros or dollars into a solar project and actually get a return. And so I think, I hope we do it a bit faster, but uh, it's more complex. I mean, the food sector is bigger, more complex, etc. But I think we can learn a lot from renewable energy people. I mean, you see some people that have set up that sector and are now moving into ag because they see the same, the same signs, they see the same potential and they're setting up funds and they're setting up investment vehicles. So I would say, let's look at them. Let's see how they did with crowd investing and let's see how they build up um, certain funds. Let's see how they created the pipeline, the infrastructure to put money to work. Um, because we need that. And of course, they make mistakes and they, they push people out of their lands and they build wind turbines in places we shouldn't build them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they did manage to to build a machine that's really going now. I mean, we'll be surprised in a few years how far solar and wind and, and some others have, have gotten uh, that we never imagined 20 years ago. It was The price was ridiculous. It would never happen. And then it did. Awesome. So what's the next move for you? I know, sorry, for those of you listening, um, Kun has a, a podcast called Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, which is like very hard to forget. But, but apart from that, like what is your next move and how are you going to try and, you know, leverage off this new wave, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely picking up. If you look at the, the, the podcast and the listen numbers, which is one of the few things, or also the emails of people, like people getting in touch, it's exploding over the last 12 months. And with this crisis even more, it seems to be... Um, definitely a moment of great change for the food sector, both huge tension and huge pressure on certain pieces and huge opportunity because a lot of these, uh, like Joel, Salatin and other farms, they've never had a better months. Like they are completely sold out. They have waiting lists. They have people offering them money to be like their, their prime customer, like at Amazon, that you can always get food. Like I will pay you $500 a year. So I, I'm always first on the list when there's food. Like it's very interesting. <laughs> we've never seen that. Like we've never seen that. But of course it creates huge tension and we need to build up and scale, et cetera. So for me, I will, I will keep following the, the, the space. I, we, we increase the production of the podcast to one a week because there are just simply too many stories to tell. So we're releasing one a week, which is obviously creating more work. Um, next to that with Tonic, I mean, the impact investing space also gets a lot of extra attention now because we see the, the fossil fuel companies and industry completely falling apart, the cruise industry, the airline industry, the food industry. And so there's it creates a lot of questions around how, what is my money doing? What is my pension money doing? What is my bank money mm. doing? And just as we're asking our questions about immune system in, in a crisis, why did some sudden people get way sicker than others? And why did it hit sudden uh, groups way more? And does it have to do with our immune system or not? And what we eat? Probably yes. And so what does it mean? So I will be focusing and, and basically keep keep asking a lot of questions uh, on, on investing in how do we put money to work to restore soil and actually oceans. I'm starting to look more and more in, in aquaculture, seaweed and, and algae, etc. because it's yeah, 70% of our globe, maybe we should look at that too. Probably it's been <laughs> more destroyed than some soils. So there's there's a lot of work, yeah. a lot of potential as well. So I'll be yeah. asking questions, releasing content, hopefully with people that are, are building interesting things in the space, that are thinking beyond their own farm with more than their own money. They're thinking, okay, how do we bring this to a whole valley, to a whole watershed, to a whole river system? How do we build a food company with food as medicine? How do we, how do we put... Like consumer money to work in this space. Those are the interesting interviews for me. 
Yeah. How do we measure I mean, nutrient density, like, which is not so easy? Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, on the notes of what regenerative aquaculture, I think, is that what, is that what you're referring to? Look, that's, that's a whole nother kind it's of fascinating. Kind of I don't know enough uh, about, it. I used to work at a, an yeah. aquaculture fund, a sustainable aquaculture fund. And then we looked at these multi-species, like how do you grow fish and shellfish and algae all in the same, I wouldn't say system because it was, it's outside in the sea, but I think the first, let's say, few kilometers of any coastline are fascinating places and usually actually quite suffering from runoffs of farms. Like you can see the dead zone in the New Mexico. You can see like all the fertilizer that's not being used by, by plants is going to flush away and run into the sea, which is creating huge issues. And so there's going to be a lot of that. Actually, it's a circle. I mean, what, whatever flushes from your farm at some point has to end up in the sea, which needs to be absorbed yeah. by plants, meaning... Um, meaning algae and seaweed, and you can bring that back to the farm. It's actually good fertilizer. So there's that, and very interesting, of course, from the health perspective, what you can eat and yeah. not eat from from the sea. So that's um, no, no. Well, let's save that. Let's save that for another one, because yeah, I'd love to chat to you again. But I think I think we'll leave it at that. Couldn't it's what's your what's your next what's your next move after this? What do you my, my next move? Well, I think I just want to interview you know as many people as possible. But uh, you know, I see I see regenerative agriculture as like the the main what do you call it like axis that the next food movement needs to revolve around. So I think that refined carbohydrates and sugar are definitely bad. There are a lot of there's a lot of land that's busy farming that stuff, farming it to feed cattle as well. So I suppose you know, if I was just looking at South Africa, we've got a lot of unfarmed land. So there is a great potential to invest in regenerative agriculture here. Um, I would say that, you know, we merge a huge portion of the corn industry with livestock to turn that into regenerative livestock farming instead of just like growing the corn there and feeding it to the cows there. Um, but then stimulating demand for you know, the right type of produce. So a lot of my cooking and stuff is based on getting people excited about eating real food that doesn't come out of a packet in the middle aisle, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely that, that level here is very dangerous, yeah. That's yeah, actually so a really exactly, good group. Yeah. I, I did one interview with them. I have to check in with them. They've made huge steps in, in South Africa that's doing regenerative agriculture, both in South Africa and Zambia, and I think partly Madagascar, called Grounded like literally grounded okay. as in yeah. they're very interesting, like how to work with um, a lot of land that hasn't been used or hasn't been farmed very, like has been overgrazed, et cetera, what to introduce context specific landscape scale as well. And, and how to build food companies out of that and, and ingredient companies. It's uh, they're doing great work. Grounded. I'll get them on the show as well. Couldn't it's been a sure. pleasure chatting to you. And uh, for those Thank of you so much. watching, yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, go to at invest underscore rig, ridge in a regenerative, yeah. Or just the website is investing in regenerative agriculture.com. It's uh, cool. And, and send any podcast. questions through the website. It's quite easy to get in Dutch or through Twitter. Um, awesome. It's not and if you're enjoying this video, like it, share it, leave a comment and uh, tune in for the next one, which will be in a couple of weeks with someone else. Really cool, I hope. <laughs> See you soon. Thanks so much for watching. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to join the Supper Heroes community, please get onto Facebook and join the Facebook group. That is the Supper Heroes Facebook group. For more information on me, follow me on Facebook. The Jono Proudfoot. Follow me on Instagram at Jono Proudfoot. Check out my website www.jonoproudfoot.com. 
And if you're interested in taking my online keto course or getting online keto coaching, check out realmealrevolution.com. Please follow and download. We're out to change the world and you can be a part of it. See you next week.